Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. On today's episode, we take a look at the testimony provided by Kenosha Police Detective Ben Antaramian, one of the two lead detectives on this case. That's coming up right after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. On Monday, November 8th, 2021, at the end of the day that began with Gage Grosskreutz's testimony, the state calls Detective Ben Antaramian to the stand. Antaramian and his partner Martin Howard, who testified earlier in the trial, were the co-lead detectives investigating the shootings by Kyle Rittenhouse. Antaramian sports short hair and a goatee. He wears a gray suit with a spread-collar white shirt and a purple paisley tie. His detective badge rests visibly on the outside of his suit jacket pocket. Much of the Q&A between Prosecutor Thomas Binger and Detective Antaramian mirrors his partner Detective Howard's testimony. Binger rehashes questions about the detectives' responsibilities during the protests, whether there were any other killings in Kenosha during that time, how they came to receive the assignment to investigate the shootings, and their travel to Antioch, Illinois to interview Kyle Rittenhouse. Antaramian also testifies about taking possession of Rittenhouse's AR-15, detaching the scope from it, and boxing the evidence. He also confirms firearms expert Heather Williams' assessment that eight shell casings that were recovered from the scenes of the shootings were from Rittenhouse's weapon. Williams offered a brief testimony to those facts earlier in the same day as Antaramian's testimony. Binger next elicits testimony from Antaramian intended to counter the defense inference that Anthony Huber's DNA would have been found on the barrel of Rittenhouse's rifle if that rifle barrel had been swabbed. Binger asks the detective if he ever received a request from anyone to have additional swabs done on any part of that gun, and the detective answers no. Binger also enters two more videos into evidence. The first clip captures audio immediately after the shooting of Joseph Rosenbaum, but the video adds nothing to our understanding of the events that transpired. The second is drone footage without sound and shows the sequence of Joseph Rosenbaum pursuing Kyle Rittenhouse into the car source lot, Rittenhouse shooting Rosenbaum, and the aftermath of the shooting. The vantage point of the drone is from approximately 100 feet south of the car source lot behind Rittenhouse and perhaps 50 feet in the air. While most of the lot is well lit, the area where the shooting takes place is dark and so this evidence also seems to offer us no additional information about the shooting. And with that, Prosecutor Thomas Binger turns the witness over to defense attorney Corey Shirovacy for cross-examination. Shirovacy begins by following up on Binger's most recent evocation of the fact that Rittenhouse was the only person to kill someone during the Kenosha civil disturbances. Now, you were, you, you were asked some questions initially by Mr. Binger about uh, if anybody was 
uh, if anybody else was uh, killed that evening. Uh, during those time of those riots, there were people that had been uh, seriously injured, correct? Yes. Law enforcement officers had been seriously injured, is that right? Correct. One officer was struck in the face with a brick. Is that yeah. right? Yep. And then a man who came out to help that officer, somebody had filled up, I think it was a bottle with cement and hit that person in the face. Is that right? Breaking his jaw? I don't have firsthand knowledge of that aspect, but the previous, the brick one, I know for a fact. Shirovsky next calls the detective's attention to notes that he made that distanced the defendant from a Facebook organized militia group. One of the things in your role as a detective was uh, you had gotten uh, information regarding a specific group called Armed Citizens to Protect Our Lives and Property. Is that right? Correct. And uh, that video or that Facebook post uh, listed uh, specifics, August 25th, 6 p.m., things like that, right? It was like a Facebook like group meeting. Okay. Your report indicates there are no indications in the email that Kyle Rittenhouse liked or showed interest in the Facebook post or the group itself, correct? Correct. Shirovsky follows up by asking Antaramian about the sequence of evidence collection on the morning after the shootings, as well as the decision to file a criminal complaint against the defendant. So when you arrived, I know you, that you said you were arrived at the Antioch Police Department. It was about what time, if you remember? I honestly don't recall. It was a long night. Um, early in the morning? Yeah, absolutely. Like three or four in the morning? Sound about right? That was sound about right, yes. And... At that point, can you tell me what, if anything, uh, you had reviewed in the way of evidence? We had seen at that point, I believe, two videos that were circulating on social media uh, that were pretty grainy, uh, shared secondhand. You know, we really didn't have the original source of it uh, that showed, I believe, the first shooting of Joseph Rosenbaum, and then I want to say the next two as well uh, in separate clips. At that point, you didn't have any, uh, because of the time, you didn't have any, no statements had been taken yet, as far as you knew, correct? None that were related to me. And um, obviously at that point, none of the forensic work or anything like that certainly was maybe being collected, but it wasn't completed. Correct. Okay. And, um, this was even before Gage Grosskreutz's interview with police. True? Yeah, because uh, first shift conducted that, and that'd be some after 6 or 7 a.m. The interview with uh, Mr. Grosskreutz occurred uh, somewhere after 6 or 7 a.m. when day shift came on. So our interview, our interactions down in Antioch were closer to 3 or 4 a.m. And you had, if I'm right, you had placed Mr. Rittenhouse under arrest for these offenses at about six-ish in the morning? That sounds about right. Okay. And, um, again, I'm not being critical. You had basically seen some grainy footage of the videos, and that's what you had at that point. Fair? We had his admission that he had been involved in the shootings. Uh, and then, yeah, some video, absolutely. The next day, meaning the 27th, you our meeting with the DA's office uh, to formalize charges against Mr. Rittenhouse, correct? To draft a criminal complaint. 
at that point, had you been made aware of or reviewed the statement by Richie McGinnis about what he had observed? Do you remember? I don't recall if I saw that exact one yet. We really didn't sit down and read all the reports for at least a few days, given everything and how fluid the situation was. Okay, so to be fair, he was charged prior to all of the information actually coming in, correct? The, the criminal complaint was drafted prior to us concluding the investigation. I would agree with that. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Sharafasi then pivots to reprising a series of questions that he had asked Detective Martin Howard, exploring the detective's decision not to execute the signed search warrant for Gage Grosskreutz's telephone. In this case, you drafted an affidavit to get the phone belonging to Gage, Gage Grosskreutz, right? I don't know if it was me who drafted the affidavit or Detective Howard, but between the two of us, an affidavit was drafted, correct? And that affidavit was presented to a, a Kenosha County judge. Correct. Who reviewed it and signed it. Correct. Right? Yes, sir. So you had a, a valid, in your mind, certainly a valid search warrant. Correct? Correct. I know there's been information or conversations about Marcy's, this Marcy's law and things like that. You've been an officer for how long? Ten years? Yes, sir. Have you ever had a search warrant signed by a judge that you did not execute? Yes. Okay. Have you ever had a search warrant that you did not execute in a homicide investigation? I don't recall. It's it's possible. Sometimes you have warrants where you just maybe you realize you messed up an affidavit. There's There's been times I have not served an affidavit or a signed search warrant. I can't say it with certainty whether or not it was on a homicide investigation though. If you don't executed is it most of the time because of what you just said you believe there might be something faulty with the search warrant that's the common reason but you can have times where new information comes forward and you determine you're not going to execute that search warrant did new information come forward in this case as to why you would not execute a search warrant in for gauge gross crates's phone as was discussed previously uh, we were advised uh, given marcy's law it would not be ideal to execute that search warrant who advised you of that I believe it was a conversation with the attorneys. I don't know who brought it up initially, though. So when you say the attorneys, Mr. Binger was one of the attorneys? I believe so, yes. Tell me if I'm right. The prosecutors in this case advised you not to execute the search warrant for Gage Grosskreutz's phone. That sounds correct. Have you ever had a prosecutor say to you, Detective, you have a valid search warrant. Don't execute it. Not that I can recall, though. Have you ever relied on Marcy's Law not to execute a search warrant since it's gone into effect? We've had conversations uh, in the aftermath, but I don't recall not searching one solely on that basis. And it's the only one that you recall ever getting a direction from a prosecutor handling the case not to do it? Pursuant to Marcy's law, yes. Okay. 
contradicting Detective Howard, who took complete responsibility for the decision not to execute the Grosskreutz search warrant. Antaramian acknowledges that the advice to demure on the warrant came from the prosecuting attorneys. Sharofsky also digs into Grosskreutz's cooperation as a witness. Now, you, um, being the lead detective on the case, you also had an opportunity uh, to try to interview Gage Grosskreutz uh, about a month or so. The 20th, September 24th. Okay. And certainly he's an important, in your mind at that point, he's an important piece in the case, right? Correct. And so you set up a, a, a time to get his statement. Fair? I, I, I don't think I was one that set it up, but there was a, an agreed upon meeting time, correct? Had you already reviewed, if you recall, his original statement to uh, Officer Birch? Yeah, I had. And had you reviewed the video in the case as well, involving Mr. Grosskreutz? Yeah. So you you knew that he had lied about dropping his gun, correct? There was definitely a discrepancy between what the video showed us and what his original statement to Officer Birch showed. And when you interview Mr. Grosskreutz um, in September, once you kind of get to the meat and potatoes about what had happened with him, he refused to answer your questions. Is that right? He consulted with his attorney, and yeah, we did not get all the all of our questions answered. You asked for permission or consent to look through his phone. Is that right? Correct. And you did that in multiple for multiple people in this case. Did you not ask for permission? Yes, we asked many people. And there's actually a form that you use that they sign that grants you permission to do that, right? Correct. Okay. And in this particular case, did he ever give you permission to look through that phone? No, he did not. Given this testimony with new details of Grosskreutz's unwillingness to cooperate, it becomes much clearer why he was so poorly prepared as a witness. It seems unlikely that the witness was ever willing to be interviewed or questioned as part of the prosecution's trial preparation. We will, of course, examine the implications of all of this in our weekly recap. Sharofsky next moves on to ask the detective about his attempts to seek cooperation from Anthony Huber's girlfriend, who was with him on the night he was killed. Do you know a person, when I mean no, are you aware of a person named Hannah Giddings? Yes, I am. And that is Mr. or was Mr. Huber's girlfriend? Correct. Um, you were informed that Miss Giddings had that skateboard. Is that right? I'm going to check also hearsay. Uh, it sounds like hearsay. I'll ask it to you this way. Did you ever request a search warrant to get that skateboard? No, we never had a solid uh, idea as to where it was. Did you ever ask any potential witness if he or she might have it? We were in communication with Hannah Giddings uh, to try and obtain that skateboard, yes. And I don't want you to tell me what she said, but based on the information that you had, do you think that you had a basis to get a search warrant for it? 
No, because one of the aspects of a search warrant is you have to define where you're going to search. And without a solid location that would determine that, I wouldn't have enough for a search warrant. Did you ever ask her to just turn it over? Yes, we did. Do you have it? I don't. We, it's not in our evidence, and I don't personally have it now. Sharofsky also tries to elicit testimony that the detectives might have swabbed the barrel of the Rittenhouse weapon, but the witness rebuffs that suggestion, saying that doing so would have been against protocol. Sharofsky then elicits testimony from the detective attesting to Kyle Rittenhouse's complete cooperation, as contrasted with Grosskreutz's uncooperativeness, about the detective's failure to locate the pistol fired by Joshua Zeminski, and about video showing Joseph Rosenbaum pushing a dumpster on fire into the street and engaging in other provocative behavior. The defense attorney next walks through the events leading up to the shooting of Joseph Rosenbaum, much in the same way as he did with Detective Martin Howard, though this witness is much less willing than his partner was to accept Sharofsky's narrative that in those final moments, Rosenbaum sought to ambush Kyle Rittenhouse. However, Sharofsky finds more success with the witness when he suggests that the video evidence shows that Kyle Rittenhouse only fired his weapon when under threat. Saw the video where the person I showed it to Mr. Grosskreutz, the person runs up to Mr. Rittenhouse and then steps back. Right? Yes, I've seen that. that. Correct. And no shot fired. Correct. You saw other people that were kind of, it wasn't a two or three person chase. There were multiple people kind of around Mr. Rittenhouse, some of them brandishing weapons, correct? There were people and there were people that were armed, absolutely. And those people who didn't attack him, he didn't fire at them, did he? Correct. The only people that he fired at were people that had either kicked him, uh, hit him with something, or pulled a gun on him when he's running down Sheridan Road, right? I would agree with that statement. And after he, initially when he sees Gage Grosskreutz, You'd agree when Mr. Grosskreutz's hands are up, he doesn't fire. Correct. There's a person to Mr. Grosskreutz's, it would be his left, with a metal pipe. Do you remember that? I know earlier we saw, you called it a wooden club. I don't know. I remember seeing a wooden, or off, fairly off the distance, there's a metal pipe, yes. And so people who, who are armed, he doesn't, he doesn't fire at any of those people, does he? Correct. Sharofsky concludes his cross-examination. On redirect, Prosecutor Binger seeks to get the witness to reframe some of the implications of Antaramian's testimony on cross. But perhaps the most effective aspect of his redirect is this section. Detective, this drone footage that we just showed the jury, the version that we showed the jury, uh, did you and Detective Howard have any uh, versions of that prior to Friday? Not independently, we had, uh, it was something attached to a new segment. So the video existed, but it wasn't in its raw form. That was a new segment on Tucker Carlson on Fox News, if, do you know? That sounds correct. And that uh, aired a couple days after the shootings, right? I believe so. And so ever since then, you've been trying to get a the highest definition version of that video, is that right? Correct. And now we have it? It appears so. And after we got it on Friday, did you take a look at it? A little bit, yeah. And did you get a chance to look at it uh, at home? 
a little bit. Did you uh, able, were you able to, to zoom in and, and look at details of the defendant's actions in that video? Yes. What did you see? So it appears that uh, when the defendant comes around what we've been referring to as the Duramax uh, vehicle, uh, he deliberately, uh, when I say deliberately with caution and intentionally, sets down the, the fire extinguisher and then appears to bring his rifle up and point it in the direction of the Zeminskis. Then what happens? Uh, it's hard to tell based off where it was and based off what I was viewing it on, uh, which was my work phone, so it wasn't the highest def. But it looks like Josh, maybe t Joshua Zeminski takes a couple steps towards him. And then uh, at that point, uh, uh, the defendant starts to run and then Rosenbaum follows. Does the video also show the shooting, the killing of Mr. Rosenbaum? It does. And if, when you look at that video, how close does Mr. Rosenbaum appear to be the, to the defendant? This is just going off of me looking at it again on a phone, but uh, not closer than a few feet. Not close enough to touch the defendant. It does not appear so now. On recross, Sharafasi takes aim at that part of the detective's testimony. He puts the drone video on the TV screen and asks the detective. So this is the drone video that you say that you believe that you can see Mr. Hold on a second. This video you think, make sure I'm right. You can see Mr. Rittenhouse pointing his firearm. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Do you see Mr. Rittenhouse at this point? No. Okay. Play it for a second. All right, stop. Do you see him yet? We're one second in. So, just so you're aware, if you can't do it with this program as far as I know, but like on my iPhone, my work iPhone, you can pinch to zoom. So what what the jury gets to see, we'll never see that, right? I, I, if there's a way to zoom it in. Okay, well, this is what we have. And you'd agree that from this video that we have, what you've testified to is unobservable. I agree? Uh, off this view, absolutely. Okay. Did you... See you send the video um, to be enhanced in any way to like the crime lab or anything like that? I haven't personally, no. Do you know if anybody has? I believe the prosecution is. Is doing that now? I believe so. Okay. Sharafsi also puts up a clip referenced by Binger on redirect where Joseph Rosenbaum uses the N-word in confronting an armed individual about pointing his weapon at him. I don't know why he's saying that. But we've established he's saying it in the guise or in the surroundings of a, a Black Lives Matter protest. Yes? Agreed. You had said that on this video that we don't get to see, um, you're able to see things in terms of how far away uh, you believe Joseph Rosenbaum is, right? From you talking about the drone video? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you know as a, in your training and experience as a detective, do you know what extreme stippling is? I know stippling is related to uh, when a gunshot occurs, but I couldn't say what extreme stippling is now. Somebody is close enough to a gun when it's fired. The gases that come out of that gun burn the skin of that person. Based on your investigation in this case, 
Joseph Rosenbaum had stippling on his body, correct? Correct. Did, through your um, investigation, do you know if Mr. Rosenbaum had stippling on his hand? I'd have to see the medical examiner's report to say yes or no. You don't have a recollection of that? I don't. Do you have a recollection of where you observed it? I remember seeing it in the preliminary autopsy results, but I, I don't remember exactly where now. And with that implicit challenge of the detective's statement that Rosenbaum was not touching the rifle when he was shot, Detective Antaramian is excused, and we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us on our next episode as we examine the testimonies of two forensic experts, the last two witnesses called by the state in their case against Kyle Rittenhouse. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik, and it was edited by Chris Taracone. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and Trial Audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.